Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Fee for Service Dentist Podcast, Dr. Sunny Spirit. Today's my guest is Chuck Cohen. He is one of the owners, he and his brother are the owners of Benco Dental, family-owned dental company, one of the top three in the country. It is the largest independently-owned dental distributor, and it has a Clarion Financial as its uh, a sister company. And they've grown with innovation, and a lot of conversation in, in this podcast is about how did you grow your practice? What did you stand for? How did you deal with the challenges that came up? How did you scale it? I know some people are interested in doing that. And really fascinating, he talks about three of the trends in dentistry today, which I think are fascinating, one of which has to do with reimbursements. So sit back, relax, enjoy the show. Today, as always, our podcast is brought to you by Kettenbach. Kettenbach's our sponsor. Kettenbach Dental is excited to announce another major advancement. This time it's in fluoride varnish treatments. No longer any alcohol or resin. Instead, patients will want new treatment delivered by a muco-adhesive dimethicone gel, leaving a smooth, silky, lubricous feel. No more grit. Contact Kettenbach today for more details. And do more varnishes that patients will appreciate. Product is called Profisil. P-R-O-F-I-S-I-L. Contact Kettenbach, 877-532-2123. And remember, they're direct to you, Salesforce. Okay, relax, enjoy. If you like the episode, contact me. If you don't, if you, if you like the episode, tell all your friends, share it, and, and like it. If you don't like it, then you contact me and tell me what you'd like to see and how we can make it better for you. After all, this is delivered for you guys to soak it up, eat it up, and improve your game. My name is Drew Burns, and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe that the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe that the best way, no, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart, that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast and these are our stories. Welcome to the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast, Dr. Sonny Spirit. Today I have a special guest now. I'd plan this one out, and if you guys know me, I'm not a great planner, so I had to had to get with uh, Chuck and his uh, assistant and make a plan and put it on a calendar and do all those adult things. And and I, we we pulled it off, so we got it done. And here we are, and we're talking to we're going to talk to Doc, excuse me, Charles Cohen, who is the owner of Benco Dental. And let me give you a little background. He's managing director and third generation owner of Benco Dental Company. 
the nation's largest independently owned dental distributor, and Clarion Financial, a sister company offering financing to dentists, which I have used, by the way. Founded in 1930 by Benjamin Cohen, Benco serves over 25,000 dental offices and dental laboratories across the United States. The company is based in Northeast Pennsylvania with locations in 40 states. He's a graduate of University of Penn. He joined Benco as a territory rep in 1989. Funny, that's when I graduated dental school. After taking on management roles in the company's sales and marketing department, he assumed a senior leadership role in 1997. So please welcome Charles Cohen. I, uh, Charles, Chuck, I, I know you as Chuck. Which, which, what would we like to do? Chuck is great, Sonny. That's great. And thank you. I'm very flattered to be on here and very flattered to talk with you. Uh, you're a great guy and have been a terrific customer for a long time. So really appreciate the opportunity. Well, well thank you. I mean, full disclosure, right? I'm a, I'm a Benko guy. Um, I, I started out with a little small group called Leventhal, AJ Leventhal and Sons in Pennsylvania when I got on my own. And I think they ended up, did you guys end up buying them or they ended no, up they selling them? No, they sold it. Patterson. They sold Patterson, Patterson. Yeah. So they sold to Patterson. I was with them for a bit. And then you've got great people and um, a couple of your service and salespeople I got very friendly with. And I haven't really looked back since. So it's been a very good relationship and it's mutually beneficial, I'm sure. So, so tell us about your background. Where are you from originally? So I'm from Northeastern Pennsylvania, third generation in the family business, as uh, as Sonny, as you said before. Uh, so 93 years ago, my grandfather started the business. He was really a door-to-door -door salesman for dental instruments. Our original relationship was with Premier Dental, which is fun yeah. because they're still in business and they are yep. still family-owned. So um, he used to go door-to-door -door selling dental instruments and then decided to open a small operation in Wilkes-Barre, Northeastern Pennsylvania. And then since then, we've been growing my father. Um, is still involved in the business, and my brother and I are co-owners today, and we, man we run the business together. We're co-managing directors, so it's, it's quite a nice success story. All right, so given that history, what was it like as a five, six-year-old growing up in your house? Um, we talked about the business a lot, which yeah. was interesting. It was like all-consuming, and um, one of the things that came through loud and clear was that uh, Larry, my dad, really liked what he did and thought it was really important. Um, and so when it came time to picking a career, I think my brother and I both realized that uh, going into the family business was quite excellent and a, quite an interesting opportunity. From my own point of view, I would say I always was interested in business and I had the opportunity to own a business. So I figured why not take advantage of that? When I was graduating college, um, a lot of my compatriots all sort of ended up in law school or consulting jobs. I ended up as a dental floss supply sales rep in New York, and um, mm -hmm. it was an interesting journey. Um, but uh, when it's all said and done, super glad I did it. So I got to ask you, because you always hear, oh, no, this is coming, that's coming. And so now you're, so your grandfather and your father. Now, I'm assuming when you were young, your grandfather was still running it. Your dad was there. Was there a transition period? Did you watch that transition period happen for your dad? Um, so the interesting thing is my fa my grandfather started the business, but he was a pretty small thinker overall. Um, and really, it was my father who grew the business uh, really on a, on a bigger scale. 
So my father joined the business in about 1959, 1960, and he really ran the business till about the mid 1990s when my brother and I took on leadership roles. So he, in about 30, 35 years or so, he grew it from a very, very small operation uh, to a multi-region, to a regional operation, basically the mid-Atlantic states. So the transition between my father and my grandfather was more like my father took it on and he really grew it big and it wasn't much of a transition because my grandfather was very happy with that. Like he was a pretty small thinking guy. The transition between my father and my brother and me was uh, pretty seamless overall. The one thing that, my, that Rick and I would both say is that Larry was very honorable and easy to give over the leadership. He felt he had been in the seat for a long time. He always wanted to work with the kids in the business, and he really gave us a lot of latitude and a lot of room to make our decisions and make our mistakes. He only criticized a little bit every once in a while, but overall, we've, and still today, we're working together, the three of us, and it's, uh, it's great. So I would say the transitions have, have gone very well for us. Well, it's funny you say that, because there's always, you always have generational differences, right? And you always say, um, you know, I'm going to do things this way or like, you know, nowadays, right? I don't have a pen and paper. I'm going to use my iPhone or I'm going to use my, you know, uh, my Android or my uh, iPad or some digital technology. And there's always that, I could say resistance to change, but that comfort level. And, and I see a lot in, in some business transitions. In fact, a really good friend of mine, um, his son is my son's age and he had a, he had a diner. And his son wanted to change a bunch of things. And his dad, I mean, even move the Pepsi machine. He just didn't want to do it. So his son said, I, I have to move on. And because that resistance was so strong, whereas yours sounds like such a very fruitful relationship, what were some of the things that you learned from that that helped you in your transition? So the great thing about Larry is Larry always wants to move forward and he always wants to make things better and he's always open to new ideas. And Rick and I came into the business and said, you know, here are some of the things that we think we really need to do to move this business forward. And Larry was always open for it, partly because, and I think this is really an unstated one, is Larry was, and it still is today, is always interested in putting the money back in the business. So I think one of the reasons why the previous generation in a family business gets more conservative about where we're going is because they don't want to continue to invest. They look at the business as something that they built and they look at it as something that they need to take money out of in order to fund their retirement. One of the nice things about Larry, in addition to him being pretty easy about this stuff and being easy to work with, was he was always thinking that the business needs to continue and the business needs to continue to grow on behalf of the family and the employees and the customers. So it's really this, this perpetual idea of investing back in the business that made it easy for Rick and me to come in and really move the business forward. One of the examples that I think uh, from the 1990s that I think is worth sharing is we were really part of the transition from ordering primarily through a sales rep to ordering primarily through a fax machine and then online ordering. I think that became one of our competitive advantages and it required a fair amount of investment and some time and some thinking. There are other businesses in our sector that didn't make that transition easy because the previous generation said, we're not gonna do that or whatever. But I do think that Larry was open to it. Rick and I, uh, and Rick primarily on this one, really did most of the work on it. We reinvested in the business and made tough transitions like make, like for example, making sure all of our sales had laptop computers because without a laptop, you can't, or like these are the decisions we made that in retrospect looked like they were pretty easy. At the time, they were kind of stressful. 
And I really give my father credit for standing aside and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm open to that. And then uh, my brother and me for saying, okay, good, then we're going to move it forward. Yeah, that would be, that's often a challenge, right? Because what a lot of times, if they're not a forward thinker like your father seems to be from what you described, I've never met your dad, but from what it sounds like. So, and, and being open to it and then actually relinquishing some of the reins is always a little bit harder, but understanding that, oh, guess what? We're going to dump $20 million into this part of the business where some people would say, oh my God, 20 million. But if you understand what we're doing and what that provides us in the platforms and, you know, you're not going to see, to me, you're probably not going to see the return on investment. It's going to be a year or two. No, it's going to take a little time, but it's really going to be a tremendous rooted growth as you move forward. So that much more sound. Absolutely. And, and one of the rules of thumb that I throw out there is because we've been a family business for so long. The secret to success in a family business, and I know most of the listeners here are family businesses as well, just dental practices that are family owned on some level. The secret to success in a family business, from my observation, is actually something that no one really says that often, but it's fun, so fundamental that it has to be true. And that is the family has to grow the business faster than the family grows people. And I think over and over again, we see that, you know, we see that that's true. If, if the family can grow the business faster than the family can procreate, you've got a pretty good basis and foundation for success. If the family cannot figure out how to grow the business top and bottom line faster than they can procreate, that's when you get in trouble. And the good news is we, we felt, I mean, my father had two kids and we made, made the business big enough that there was room enough for the two of us. And hopefully we'll figure out how to get it to the fourth generation. And again, one of the things working in our favor is there's three members of our fourth generation. And so I really think that's, that's an unstated sort of a golden rule about family business that really is fun, fun, found, fundamental to long-term success. Okay. Well, that's, that's the other question I want to ask you because you are a family-run business and you're going up against big corporations, big, you know, big groups, uh, Shine, uh, which... Used to, you know, there used to be Sullivan and Sullivan Shine and, Shine, you know, and, and they sort of, you know, um, almost cannibalized certain parts. So now the big players are what? Patterson, Shine, Benko, mm-hmm. and, and then, right? There's yep. three, right? And there's three a couple big. of small, there's really three big players. Then there's a couple smaller players that are family owned. But I'd say uh-huh. Benko, Shine, and Patterson are the three biggest players right now, sure. That have national coverage. So in, in your space, right, you're, you're competing so let's take a dental practice competing against corporate offices, right? What are, you know, because this relates directly, well, directly to me, I'll tell you that much, but directly to plenty of people that are listening. How did you formal, formulate the plan to compete with the big boys? And or what did you really emphasize that, that was one of your distinguishing separations. You talked about going to technology earlier, but what were some other things? There had to be some core principle values yep. that defined it. Sure. So one of the things that we say at Benco and we say it over and over again, and it's so refreshing, I think, for the people who work with us is as a family business, we have the privilege of thinking in decades, not quarters. So our public company competitors, they can only think in three-month increments. We get to think in decades. And I can give you an example of how that actually played out in a way that was very beneficial for us. And that was during the pandemic. Um, this is tactical, right? During the pandemic, when in March of 2020, everybody was not sure what was going to happen, but we all knew something was going to happen. 
Um, there was a run on the bank basically for PPE. There was a run on the bank for gloves and for masks. Everybody was ordering everything that they get their hands on. You remember those days? Dentistry oh, was shut down. We, we made the decision very early and actually in February to ration our PPE and hold back the PPE for our customers and make sure that we could supply them. When in fact our competitors, Shine and Patterson, because they're public companies, I think is they just took every order they could get because their job as 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 owners is as, as managers is to make the quarter. So they made the quarter. They had a great quarter. Well, when dentistry shut down and then reopened, they did not have PPE to supply their customers. So that was an example of we made a hard decision at the time because we had orders in the door. We could have filled the orders. We turned away orders, especially from non-customers. And when people were customers and they wanted to order two and three times what they normally did, we said, no, you can only order what you used to order because we don't want to run out. We want to stretch ourselves out. We're going to start rationing. That's really a good tangible example of something in the past couple of years that worked out very well for us. We thought in decades, not quarters. And we said, okay, dentistry is going to reopen. And when our customers reopen, our job is to make sure they have the supplies they need to practice dentistry safely. So when we say we think in decades, not quarters, it's not just a phrase. We actually live by that. Um, as a consequence, we make different kinds of investments. We have different focuses. We're not focused on making money for January or February. We're here to make money and position ourselves to help our customers and help our customers help their patients for the mm -hmm. long term. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is what we've decided to sort of focus Benco on are two elements that are super important. One is innovation. How can we help our customers be the most innovative practices they can? And the second one is our caring family culture. We really think because we're a private company, because we're a family business, you can get someone named Cohen on the phone. We can provide a higher level of customer service and you even mentioned it in the beginning of the podcast. It was like you were a customer of Leventhal, which was a family-owned business for years. Leventhal made the family decision to sell to Patterson. Okay, fine. Once Patterson took over, that family culture sort of was missing. You went out and talked to some other people, and you found that, hey, Benco has that family culture that you were used to and you valued, and that's why you became a Benco customer. I love that story, and I think that really illustrates in a tangible way what makes us different than Shine and Patterson. Did uh, I stand on this vein uh, with your dad? Let me talk, take take it to your dad's time and maybe a little bit of your grandfather's time. There had to be some fear as the market, because your dad is going is taking this little small business and taking it into I'll call it uncharted waters, because I think it is in this space, because your your major your major players are your major corporations. So, what were some of the things that he had to deal with and what were some of the points where you know almost like that epiphany like we're going to make this happen in spite of some of the you know the the naysayers let's say yeah so there's always an element of fear and i think that's true of your listeners as well because and by the way we can talk about how private dentists can compete with dso's the bottom line is don't worry about the dso's just make your best play and play your best game i mean honestly there's nothing to fear from the dso's i think they play a role in the market but independent dental practices are thriving today. They, thri they thrived in the past. They will thrive in the future. As far as Benco's concerned, there's always an element of fear. You know, is the market consolidating? I remember in the 1990s, we had a bunch of people who said, you know, you're going to be the Main Street uh, hardware store and Home Depot is going to come and roll you over. Right. Like, where right, are you right. going? That, that would be the so thought. That, exactly. there, yeah. That's the thought, right? So the thing that really got us through all those years and still gets us through today, and I still think it's the most important thing we do today, is really being in touch with the customers. And what we always thought as an ownership team, as a family was, 
as long as the customers value what we do, there's always a role for us in the market. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have to innovate. It doesn't mean we don't have to invest. It doesn't mean we don't have to keep moving dentistry forward, driving dentistry forward as we do. But what it means is that if we can go out and talk to customers and the customers say, you know, there is a difference between Benko and Shine, or there is a difference between Benko and Shine or Patterson. As long as that's true, then I think there's a very good, vibrant future and it makes it, it, it assuages my fear. It makes me understand that there's always going to be a role for us in this market as long as we're doing a great job serving our customers. So even when we're the most afraid, even when the days seem darkest, even when it's like, oh my God, how are we going to get through this issue, whatever this issue is, what really sets me straight is to go out and talk to customers and the customers say, you know, you guys don't understand it. We do business with Shine, do business. You guys are the best. And we hear that over and over from customers. They like us, they like to do it, they feel we offer a higher value. As long as that's true, and as long as that's true for a regular dental, an independent dental practice, I think we all have nothing to fear. Now, let me take it back a little further. So your dad, your grandfather started with the Wilkes-Barre Benko office, right? Mm-hmm. Now let's take it to, I'm a dentist, I have a single office, and if you're crazy or stupid like me and you wanna do multiple offices, what did that look like? Do you remember that at all? When, when you when it went from a one store to, I mean, what was the strategy? And at what point did you have to really create your organizational chart and really be a business that runs a business, not just be a bunch of people that sell dental stuff? So great question. And there's a bunch of different stages you go through. So my father and my grandfather, when they really started the business or my, my grandfather started the business, we really had two stores. It sounds ridiculous now, but one in Wilkesbury and one in Scranton. Now, Scranton, for those of you who don't know, is 15 right. miles from Wilkesbury. Right, the right, idea right. of having two stores was crazy, but that's what you did in the 1940s and 50s and even into the 60s. Um, my father was the one who figured out it was time to get beyond the Wilkesbury Scranton area. And what he figured out, and I think it was correct, was there's only so much of a living we can make from this small space we were in. And at the time, every town had its own dental guy, right? Um, my father at first thought that he was um, disadvantaged because he was in a small town. It turned out later it was a big advantage, and I'm going to explain why. My father spent the first five or ten years of his career really working within 50 miles of Wilkesbury. It wasn't until the early 1970s that he actually had the guts to try out Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the big city. It was 100 miles away. Right, the roads right. were not as good back then, right? But he said, you know, but someone said to him, a friend of his said, why don't you just go to Philadelphia? My father said, oh, Philadelphia, it's so scary. And the guy said, look, hire a sales guy and see what happens. And my father said, okay, that doesn't sound like a big deal. And in fact, what my father figured out was being in the small town was actually an advantage. It made him more, um, more it made him hustle more. It made him more, uh, gave him a little bit more, um, confidence when he got to a big city. And then when he actually opened in Philly, what he figured out was the small town values that he took for granted, the customers in Philadelphia actually valued a lot. Now, once we figured out the customers wanted to buy from us, then the question came, how do you reorganize the business? And I would say, as we've grown in every stage, there's been different versions of reorganization. The big category I put on this, and then we can move, you know, talk about as much as you want, is basically how do you become more and more professional, right? How do you go more and more from one owner operator? And my father was not just the owner operator, he was also the main sales guy. How do you go from the owner operator, so sort of like a dentist owning a practice, to professionalizing the management and the support? And the answer was you hire people, Mm -hmm. you try, you work through it. Some of the people work out, some of the people don't. You keep refining and refining, and it's not easy to do. 
Again, the key to Larry's success, I think, has been always putting the money back in the business. That's really been true because you always got to invest. Whether you're a dental practice or a dental distributor, you got to invest in the future. And as long as you're doing that, then there's a lot of room for making mistakes and there's a lot of room for hiring the right person. So as long as you're taking enough, you know, enough money out of the business to live, but not too much money that the business has trouble, I think you got a good shot at success. So how did you handle, because now, okay, like you, you just described it, right? So you have the business and now you're creating sales and now you got to support those sales. And I found one of the challenges that we have seen as, as we've grown is, okay, you have to set up an organization so that A, communication flows freely from the point of contact of sale to the point of service and delivery, right? You have the added portion of now you also have to deal with secondary suppliers, right? That supply products to you. So now you got to talk about distribution. How did you handle some of those other challenges that had to come up that may not necessarily be part of dentistry, but they really are. I can, I can vouch for it that you have to have the right organization structure. Absolutely. So the key in our transition and our transformation really was hiring the right people and really putting them in, putting in the right structure so, so those people can be successful. It was a really, really big transition for Larry to turn over the reins to other people and trust them to start making decisions, right? And really putting in a structure that works. I, I would say that if you want to understand any business, take a look at the org chart. And I think that's true of a dental practice as well. So when I talk to dentists who are trying to go through this transition, the first thing I say is like, you are the main provider, the main producer of the dentistry for the most part, right? And as you grow, you have to figure out what are the areas where you need to hire in people in order to make sure that you can uh, scale your business up. That's really the challenge. And the Scaling it. That, that's the right word. Scaling is hard. Scaling yeah. it is hard. So a couple rules of thumb that we've used that I think are applicable to your, to your listeners. Number one is you got to be able to reinvest. Number two is you got to be committed to being bigger. And so the reason I say that is because I think the biggest mistake that a lot of doctors make is they open just a second office. What I mean when I say that is the second office is your worst decision if all you're going to do is two offices. You're never in the right place. You don't have enough scale in the business and you get stuck and frustrated. And I've seen that happen over and over again. So by definition, if you want to get to five or six offices, you have to open your second office. So I'm not saying a second office is a bad idea. What I am saying is think a little bit about where you want to end up. If you want to end up with five or six offices, then clearly a second, a third, a fourth is going to, that mathematically you need to do that. What, I, what I'm saying is think a little bit about what is the end result that you want. If the end result is five or six offices, Great, that's going to require investment in people, investment in time, investment, and really changing the way you operate. Because if you're going to be the main producer in your single biggest office, you're just not going to have the infrastructure and the, and the, um, the resources to grow to five offices. So the second one is to figure out what is the end in mind you want. And then the third one is to figure out what are the skills and talents that you need to augment your own. And everybody's a little bit different. So in my father's case, my father was always the world's greatest salesman. He will tell you that today he's the world's greatest salesman, and I think he is. So he needed help more on the accounting side, more on the HR side. So in your situation, if you're the main provider and you're going to scale this business up, you may say, look, where I need help is on the people side or where I need help is on the operations side. But try to figure out honestly what your skill set is and bring in people and helpers to yeah. help you build around 
whatever your deficiencies are. And if you use those kind of three rules, I think you're putting yourself in a pretty good place. Hey folks, this is not like when we talk off, off air, I just want to be clear on this. This is right off the top of the head with Chuck. So this is not, this is not, he has no, just not written notes. This is not um, a scripted, we're not following a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation. I find it fascinating. Like it's just, it comes right out of your pores. It's, it's so authentic. Um, the one thing that, one thing I find interesting that I, I'm going to say I disagree with is the second store or the second office. I think the second office is, becomes easy because if it's not at point A, it's at point B. So you, you always have the ability to say, right, well, if it's not one, it's the other. As soon as you add the third one, now it's like, oh, oh boy, you know, now we have to, now we really have to think. But you are right that if you are planning to expand or grow and scale, then I think you have to think past it. I see, I've never done that. It's just happened to us how we've grown with this doctor who wants to retire contacts us the other one and it's kind of been very organic and we've 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 grown in spite of ourselves almost you know but the organizational chart and creating that and, and we're, like we're changing it right now because we're our operations manager 26 years she's leaving we're hiring someone else we're working with a different outside resource <laughs> consultant so it's it's changing and it's evolving but if we didn't have that, we couldn't support the five and, and we couldn't even think, say, could we add six? Could we add seven? You know, do we have the bandwidth to do all that stuff? You know, fascinating. Talk a little bit about what that looks like for you guys. So it's interesting to hear you say that, Sonny, because I think we're actually in agreement. And, and the reason we're in agreement is because the two office thing, it's true. If, it, you know, if you're looking for this thing, it's only in one office that, that I get. Right. But the challenge from the people perspective is with two offices, what I observe is that you very rarely have enough infrastructure to like hire an operations manager or a treatment coordinator across all the offices because you got two offices. What you end up with sometimes, or at least this is my observation, is you end up with um, like you're like a, a, a restaurant owner where you're the chef. And you're trying to make meals, but you have two kitchens and you're never in the right kitchen at the right time and things start breaking down in the other place. The flip side, though, is and what you really said was by the time you get to the third office, the dirty little secret is you're forced to make some hard decisions because then it because then it's like going from two kids to three kids. Like you've got to start building infrastructure or else you will make yourself nuts. So yeah. it's that third office that really drives it. And like you're an accidental owner of multiple offices. I agree with that. That's true of a lot of people. But when it's all said and done, it's the owning of multiple offices that has forced you or else you'd go insane to actually build the infrastructure to be successful. Right. And that's mm -hmm. the good news and the bad news about dentistry. So I think we're actually in agreement. Mm -hmm. I think what it says is now let, let's so let's take one specific job right from the dental practice perspective by the time you get to five or six offices i would say it really makes sense to have someone who's called an operations manager that person is on some level the hr person he's the person or she's the person who gets called when the hygienist calls in sick in one of the four offices and if you're not there he's that that person who makes sure that the chairs go up and down and aren't broken down like you just need that person because the operations of have outstripped the ability of the dentist owner operator to really look at all those things with two offices it becomes really difficult to justify that it's a very expensive person to have for two offices Correct. it's a person that's the key to success in five or six offices well i think the one thing it does do now that we're talking about it is you see the necessity to have that role defined 
you know, you really say, you know, we need someone to do this. And at what point does it make sense to have a full-time, you know, a CFO? At what point, you know, is that is that person, you know, more than just a bookkeeper kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, yep, I agree. All right. So, so talk now as you guys, so as your, your father has sort of taken, so, so it's in the 70s, Philadelphia becomes your first major market. So Scranton is like a Binghamton. It's a smaller, you know, suburban semi-mini city, but now you're talking Philly and the challenges of dealing with now a city and now deliveries are on, you know, more difficult, probably streets and locations and high rises, et cetera. What does some of that look like? What, what were some of the challenges there? So um, I want to give a shout out here to two things that happened in the United States, because I think um, and the, uh, the thought that precedes the statement is sometimes as Americans, we underestimate what happens outside, like we like to think it's all because we did it. So I want to put a give a shout out here to two things that really, really, in a lot of ways, made Benco successful. Right. The first one was the development of the interstate commerce and interstate highway system. Like up until the 1950s, your re, your listeners may not remember this, but I, it's older than me, but I, I've known the history. Up until the 1950s, it took like four hours to drive from Wilkesbury to Philadelphia. And our family originally was from Philadelphia, and I heard stories and stories. It was all back roads and the whole thing. The interstate highway system in the 1950s really brought together the United States and made national commerce really possible. And I think we need to give a shout out to those who went before us and really decided to invest in this really, it's a miracle when you think about it, right? The second one that was integral to our success was the idea of UPS. So prior to UPS, the only way to deliver a package was either by yourself or the US Postal Service, and at that point they weren't very good at it. United Parcel Service was a company that started out of Seattle, and really they were from the 1920s, but by the 1960s, they had really gotten to the East Coast. And so one of the things that we're most proud of at Benco is that my father, Larry Cohen, was one of the original UPS super users in the eastern part of the United States. It wasn't like he thought about it a lot. That was one of the secrets to Larry's successes. He just sort of took opportunities and they came up. He'll tell you about it today. He's 87. And one of the seminal moments of his life was when some guy came in to his office, they were in a building, it was probably 1972 or 73, and said to him, I'm from a company called United Parcel, and we're gonna deliver your packages to Philadelphia the next day. And my father said, are you telling me you're competing with the government delivering stuff? And my, the, the guy said, yes. And my father said, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard, but sign me up. And this is a true story. And in fact, what we've later figured out was that we were, my father, Larry, was one of the original customers for UPS in the East Coast that really used it big time because he had no choice. Because if he was going to stay in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, he had no choice but to use some sort of service to get the packages delivered in Philadelphia. And really, those two things made, made us doing business in a small town, but then serving customers in a big city really possible. And then, as a consequence, we could take the, you know, the values of a, low, of a small town, cheaper to operate, better people, I think, more stability, and really bring them to a place like Philadelphia. And that really was the secret to our success. And um, I want to give a shout at those things because I don't think we take enough, you know, you know, in America, we love to say, we did it, we did it, I did it, I did it. And the answer is, no, we're all in this together. And it's all part of being part of this American culture and system that we have. And sometimes we have to say, you know what, a shout out to those people who came before us and really invested. And so, so, so the timing you. of it was very important. 
Did, was Timing there, is like, everything. Was there ever a thought that, hey, listen, we got to deliver these packages ourselves? Was that a... Yeah. For years and years, we did do a lot of deliveries on our own, and some were done by United Post, by the U.S. Postal Service. But the answer is, if those two things didn't happen, the interstate highway system and UPS, we would have, I mean, I think my father would have gotten frustrated because there's only so much of a living you can make within 50 miles of Wilkes-Barre Scranton. Sure. Those two things really brought this whole idea of small town, small town values, but serving a much, a much wider geography. And then we leveraged those things over time. So we did the mid-Atlantic, then we went to the southeast to Florida, then we went to Texas, and it took us about 15 or 20 years because we're long-term thinkers. And by about 2010, 2011 or so, we had made it all the way to the West Coast, and we had done something that hadn't been done in our business, which is becoming a family-owned, independent dental distributor with coast-to-coast -coast operations. That had never been done before. I'm particularly proud of it. I think it, it, you know, my father had customers in Allentown. Today, Benco has customers in Los Angeles. And it's quite amazing to me to think, because I remember when we only had customers in Northeastern Pennsylvania, Allentown. I mean, like I visited dental practices in Mahanoy City, you know, Susquehanna, 44, Binghamton, Vestal. Like this was where, these are the people who built Benco in a big way. And now we have customers in Los Angeles. It's like, it's uh, pretty cool. So as you, let me ask you, did you use the, the blueprint? So once you successfully have Philadelphia, I would think you would say, okay, now we got to go for New York or Baltimore or Pittsburgh. And you start to look, did, did you, who, who was in charge of the planning for the growth segments? So, yeah. So one of the things I would go back to before I answer your question is we decided in about 19, the 1990s, that if we were not able to build out a national footprint, we probably didn't have much of a future. So at the time in the 1990s, early 2000s, there were a number of regional players like Benco. So there were the national players, HealthGo, you may remember HealthGo from the 80s. They went out of business around 1992, 1993. And then Patterson's been around for over 100 years. And then Shine be, sort of replaced HealthGo in that they became a national player. So there's always been national players, public companies. And we looked out at the landscape and we said consciously, if we're going to stay a regional player, there's probably not much future for us. We need to get national. So 1990s. And we understood that that, 1990s in the 1990s, when that was that's made. right. Okay. Yep, in the 1990s. Right. I would say the mid-90s to the late 90s. Sure. We just looked out and we said, there's... now others in a similar situation made a different decision. Some of them sold to larger players and became part of the consolidation. Mir sure. um, would be one of those. Um, uh, some other players, you know, names have gone to history, but Mir would be one of the larger ones. They were based in Detroit. Um, so others decided, looked at the same situation and said, all right, there's no future for a regional, so we're going to sell. We decided, we, we agree no future for regional, but we believe we can build out a national footprint. It required a fair amount of time, a fair amount of investment, and it required a lot of patience. But we took over about 10 to 15 years region by region we added a distribution center we added sales and service people we continue to do the back office from northeastern pennsylvania and we gradually region by region area by area city by city built out a national infrastructure it took from about 1997 eight or so until about 2010 2012 so it was about a 12 14 year period yeah. um and um was there any purchase there's no the did you buy any we, businesses we, we did. We bought some smaller players, but very okay. small ones, like one or two uh, person. We bought one bigger player in Minneapolis, but basically it was a lot of organic growth, a lot of sure. organic investment. As Larry Cohen taught me and my brother, put the money back in the business. We never took out too much money. We reinvested, reinvested. 
And to be honest, I think that uh, Shine and Patterson were kind of surprised. Like, I don't think that they really had us on their radar screen as really building this whole thing out. And when we got to the West Coast, I think they were shocked that we did it. We were a little shocked because it was like, all right, is this really going to work? We weren't quite sure. But sort of like, you know, how you ended up with five dental offices was like, all right, we're going to just tackle it one at a time. And that's what we did. And I'm glad we did. But the good news is you had the concept in the 90s. You said, this is what we're going to do. So that's you and your brother at this point, Mm because you said you guys sort of got the control, right? So there's... So you took your dad's vision and plan and you injected some testosterone steroids into it. And you said, hey, we're going national. So with that, then now things can become almost intentional, right? Okay, we're going here, the Mid-Atlantic. Now we're going Midwest. And, and, and with that becomes distribution centers, et cetera, because you want to have the product to reach the consumer in a certain amount of time, right? Absolutely. But, what were your um, like your major companies that you buy from? Let's take a, I don't know an ADEC or a Serona or some of those companies. What was the, what was their support for you guys? So it varied. It's funny that you bring up ADEC. We were an ADEC dealer before we were national, and now we're not an ADEC dealer. And I really can't go into too many of the details, but I would say that um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Is the way I would describe it. You know, that's what it mm-hmm. is, and everybody made their own decisions. So I would say some companies were more supportive than others. In general, I would say that the manufacturers like doing business with us as a family business. They feel we're more friendly. They feel we're more supportive. They, they like that we're focused on innovation. So in general, there are some exceptions. The manufacturers, you know, they don't want to have all their eggs in two baskets. They'd much rather have three baskets. And if one of those baskets is family owned, they think in decades, not quarters, and they're nice to do business with, they're very, very supportive. So I think that they have enabled us, our vendor partners for the most part, have enabled us to compete very effectively with Shine and Patterson. And I think the customers have enabled it too. Like I think as, as a customer base, Every dentist in America wants options. Like they don't want to yeah. just have two options. They'd rather have another one. So I think from the vendor side and the customer side, uh, we've gotten a lot of support for our growth and we continue to get support as a business today. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, I, I will say as a, as a dentist, that's one of the major, to me, major mistakes that the, the, the companies have made. For example, I want to get you know X-ray X in my office. We don't sell that. That we're, we're only with this group. And I think that is a huge mistake. I think it's almost anti-American to, to have exclusivities. And, and the dentist is like, well, if I really like this product, you're telling me now I'm doing my office, I have to go work with another vendor? I don't want to work with another vendor. And that's, that's, a, that's a swing and a miss for us as consumers, I think. No doubt. And I want to add to it. It's basically one of our values at Benco that we believe in choice. And choice to me, choice to our team means we should be able to sell everything in the market or everything reasonable as long as we're willing to invest. And dentists should be able to buy what they want from whom they want it. And our philosophy at Benco is if you give us a fair price that we can buy it at and you give us access to the products, we'll win more than our fair share of deals. I really believe that the companies in, in this situation, our public company competitors, they love exclusives. And the reason they love exclusives is because they're scared of competing on, a, on an open playing field. We're never scared of that. If we don't earn the sale, if we don't earn the business, then don't give it to us. Yeah, so I, I couldn't I, agree with you more. And yeah. no matter how big we get, we are always going to be focused on choice and options. And if you want to buy what you want to buy from where you want to buy it, we support that. And if we're yeah. the winner, great. And if Shine or Patterson is the winner, okay too. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I've, I've run into that a couple times with, uh, I know, with x-ray equipment and other things. You know, you can't get this here and this is only here. And I just think that's a huge mistake on, on the supply parts. But that's Now, the good story. news is, before we move the topic, the good news is, Sonny, this topic tends to go in waves. And the good news is, as we sit here today in 2023, there's lots of good decisions being made by manufacturers to open more lines of distribution. Hmm. At Benco, we just added Plan Mecca, which is exciting. One of the products, Vatec, that we were basically one of the few distributors for, just opened Shine. That wasn't good for our sales line, but it's good for the industry. So mm-hmm. we are in favor of that. And I think we're in, we're in a cycle now where more vendors are opening more distributors. And I think that's good for dentistry. It's good for you. It's good for Benco. Well, to me, as a dentist, that, that's where, to me, we should have some dental representation or ADA, whatever, should be screaming this like, hey, listen, our docs, what you know, because, you know, you look at some companies, I won't name them, but they make, you know, clear tray aligners. And, you know, you have to use their scanner. You have, you know, it's, it's, it's very myopic and it's, to me, uh, it's, it's such a turnoff and I can't get past certain parts of that. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about a couple things now. What are some things that you see in the dental industry as dentists and dental practices that you see, we were talking a little bit before we went online. What are some things that you see that, that dentists, uh, common mistakes or common wrong turns that are made or things that they could maybe do a little bit differently or, you know, let's, let's go on that vein. Let's, let's, let's start talking about that. So let's use the word opportunities. Like what are the opportunities for dentists to do better? So um, I'm happy to share one. Analysis. All right. Uh, there you go. I, I, I don't want to insult anyone on this call. Right, or, or listen, any of the listeners. N- never a good idea to insult the listeners. Um, so where I want to start is by telling you that one of the things that we feel at Benco we do better than anybody is this idea of co-travel. So what co-travel means to us is our management team gets in the car or in the truck with our service techs or our sales reps many times a year. So as a team, we co-travel about 100 days a year. That means that on average, since every one of those co-travels is seven to nine offices, sometimes 10 or 12, we're you know on a big round number. Our management team, our leadership team is in like a thousand dental offices a year, 100 days, about 10, day, 10 visits a day, 10 visits each one of those days. So it's about a thousand offices. Me personally, by my calculations, I probably have been in three to 4,000 different dental offices over the past you know two decades or so. So while I'm not a dentist and I've never owned a dental practice, I can say that I'm, a, I'm an experienced observer, right? And I feel like I have a good feel for what practices do well and what practices can, up, can improve on and where the opportunities are. One of the ones that I'm passionate about these days is this idea of dentists articulating a strategy for their practice. And I have a bias, which is almost every dentist I talk to has a strategy, The strategy could be we're going to be the most innovative practice in town. It could be we're going to serve the underserved. It could be we're going to be family oriented. It could be we're going to run. I mean, I don't really care what the strategy is. I'm indifferent. I'm not here to judge one strategy is better than the other. Because there's no right or wrong. What I need to say is there's no right or wrong. In fact, the great thing about dentistry is there's lots of ways to be successful. There's lots of ways to be successful. Mm -hmm. What I am passionate about, though, is my observation the successful, most successful dental owners articulate their strategy, share it with their team, and manage to it. For example, 
when I talk to dentists and I say, hey, kind of where are you going? What's your strategy? How are you going to win? And they say, you know, we are going to be customer first, patient centric. We're going to have the best patient experience in our geography. I say, great. Then really, why is it that it's been 10 years since you've invested in your reception area? Like, why is the furniture in your waiting room, the chairs have sort of concave seating? Like, if you want to create a customer experience that's really great, awesome! Then make investment decisions in your practice that reflect that strategy. So my, my challenge to the listeners is, what could, you do dif- what could you do and or what could you do differently if everyone on your team clearly understood where the stra- what the strategy was and where you were trying to go? Imagine if it wasn't just you, the dentist owner, pulling the cart forward, but actually at a team, sort of like the Budweiser Clydesdales, a team of horses all knew where they were going and were all pulling that cart in the same direction. How much easier would that be? I would argue that the most successful dentists I know, and Sonny, you're certainly one of them, have a practice strategy, have articulated that strategy to their team, sometimes to their patients, and are making decisions that are aligned with the strategy. You're the ones who are making it work. The other ones are struggling. I loved it. You got to articulate it, and then you got to you got to define it, articulate it, and share it with your team. It's it's that's like that's the basics. I do talk about this often, and this comes up. You know, like when's the last time you sat in your dental chair and looked at your ceiling tiles, or looked at your light fixtures, or came in through the patient entrance, not not the independent entrance or use the patient bathroom, or, you know, I mean, right down the list, right? And those little things, like that defines, for the average person, a dirty office, if I see a ceiling tile with a water stain. Not 100%. if your sterilizer passed every test and your, your autoclave is running fine, right? That's not what it is. It's, it's that big wet spot up there. And they have no idea if your dentistry is good or bad, for the most part. Uh, right. So what they know is at the same time, or when was the last time you called your office and heard how the phone was answered? I mean, all these things are 101, but if you want to say you're going to have a great patient experience, but you haven't gone to your waiting room or you haven't entered through the patient entrance, all the things you mentioned, I mean, you're just, the good chances are you're not delivering on it. Excellent. And that's your opportunity. That's really, that's really insightful. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions now about what you see is going on in dentistry now. And what are some things that you see us trending toward? Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you to look in your crystal ball a little bit, but what are some things that you see right now are really hot topics? Because to me, I, I'm never, I never want to be the first user because I think a lot of times marketing is way in front of the science. So I, I, I'm not a believer in first users. I'm a believer in let, it, let the dust settle a little bit. Like, you know, you don't buy the first year of a brand new car make, you wait a year and then you maybe get it the next year kind of thing. So... What are some things that you see are, would you say, are more standards? And what are some things that you see, hey, going forward, these are things you're going to see coming up all over? So let me share a few trends that we're seeing that I think are here to stay. And every dentist who's listening should start thinking a little bit about, right? Let me share three that I think are worthy of people's attention. Mm -hmm. The first one I'm going to share is one that you're living every day, Sonny. And that is that the rise, I would call it the rise of the entrepreneurial dentist. This idea that dentistry, for a variety of reasons, which I'm happy to go into if you like, is a great place if you are a dentist and you have a business mind to build a very sustainable business. 
by buying four, five, six offices. When we talk about the growth of the entrepreneurial dentist, I'm not talking about the Aspen Dentals of the world or the Heartland. They've got a place. Right. But really where we're seeing the growth is entrepreneurial dentists. Dentists who are, I'm a dentist, and I'm also open and interested in being a business owner on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. I think that trend has you know, started five, eight, 10 years ago. It's not going away anytime soon. And I think it's one of the most exciting trends out there. So number one is that. The second one I wanna share is, it feels to me at least, that we are, on the, we are past the tipping point on the digitization of dentistry. When I say the digitization of dentistry, what I mean is, not just on the imaging side, although that's a very exciting place, but also on the milling and the 3D printing side. And so mm -hmm. when I sort of, I remember this is a, sort of a, a sidebar conversation, but I'll get back to the third one in a minute. I remember when I was a young salesperson in 1991 or 1992, I had a guy call me up, was a customer of mine, who said, I got a guy I know in Long Island City, Queens, who wants to buy a used intraoral x-ray because he's working on a project. I said, well, I got a used intraoral x-ray. I'm happy to sell the guy. The x-ray, no problem. This is like 1991, 1992. I said, uh, is the guy a dentist? He said, no, he's not a dentist. He's a scientist and he's a friend of mine. I said, all right, well, hook me up with the guy. I get the guy on the phone. Who is the guy? His name is David Schick, and he's working on the first right. intraoral sensor. Yep. So I literally talked to David Schick as he was developing the product. I am the trivia question that says I sold him, I personally sold him the intraoral x-ray that I believe he used to do the test to see what would work. So I literally was at the beginning of the digitization of dentistry. Mm -hmm. Today, it's 2023, it's 30 years later. We're past the tipping point. We're on 3D imaging, intraoral imaging. We're someday going to have 3D intraoral imaging. Um, scanning, scanning as it, it, it fuels an or, the ortho aligners. I consider that part of it. The implant market is a very much based on digitization, milling, and 3D print. Like all these things are all coming together. So the reason I say this is because I know dentists are sometimes on a wait and see attitude. It's, it, we're beyond wait and see on this stuff. So I would argue that everybody should have a digitization strategy. I'm not saying you want to buy all this stuff today. I am saying that it's not going away. We're past the tipping point. Now's the time for every dentist to say, okay, how am I going to get on board? And by the way, not only is this good investment to make because it improves your clinical outcomes, it also lowers your cost in a lot of ways. We're seeing 3D printing lowering the cost of a lot of things that dentists will do. Like 3D printing makes financial sense today. So we're over this idea, wow, I got to write a big check and I'm not sure I'm going to make money at this. We're at the point where the big check is sometimes important, although you can finance it. When it's all said and done, these things save money. And then the third one is, and, and it, uh, it's a little bit of a, a bias that I have, is we just made a, a very important acquisition. We acquired a company called PPO Profits that really gets involved in consulting with dentists on the revenue side of their practice. And the trend I would say is that I think we're, we're, the pendulum is swinging back and some more power and clout is moving away from the insurance companies back to the dentist, whether it's the Massachusetts ballot initiative yep. that put a, a, a limit on what dental insurance companies can make, or it's the ability to get a helper in to help you negotiate your fees, whatever it looks like. I do believe that uh, dentistry, the, the pendulum is swinging a little bit away. Now, listen, dental insurance, thank God, is not going anywhere. But I think dentist, the trend I would pick up on is that dentists can have more power and clout in negotiating fees and fee schedule with insurance companies and reclaiming some of those dollars that have slipped away over the past few years. And I'm kind of excited about that. You'd have to know how to do it. 
You have to get focused on it. You have to sometimes get a helper because it's hard to do on your own. But when it's all said and done, I like that trend a lot because I think it means that dentists can um, reclaim some of the revenue side of their practice. And this idea that, oh my God, I'm at the mercy of the insurance companies forever. I just don't think that's true. Listen, insurance companies are an important part of dentistry. Without them, most patients don't come see us. So I don't want to get rid of it. And so everyone should make their own decision. But they are not the enemy. They are not the boogeyman. That said, there are things you can do proactively as a dentist to improve your standing with the insurance company. So those are the three trends. So number one is um, uh, this idea about the entrepreneurial dentist, Mm -hmm. right? Number two would be the digitization of dentistry is past the tipping point. It's here to stay and everyone should have an idea what they're going to do. And the third one is that, you know, dentists don't have to live in fear of the insurance providers anymore. There are things you can do to shift that relationship around should you choose to do so. Well, you are on the fee-for-service dentist podcast, so we are big proponents. And most of us have either made that transition to go out of network and work with the insurance carrier versus work for the insurance carrier in that capacity. So uh, I, I, I agree. In fact, I just got a note from someone who's writing an article and they asked me to contribute to it a little bit about some of these trends and I'm going to look at it and probably uh, add my two cents and then let her edit all the grammar so it sounds right. Um, so that's that's kind of one of the things that we're, we're looking at. And I, I do feel, I do feel that the thing, the, the movement that happened in Massachusetts was, was tremendous because the one thing that's unfair is as dentists, we don't get the same platform the insurance companies can use. Like insurance companies have the, you know, least favored nation. They have the ability to talk and quote collude, whereas we can't. Well, I can't talk to another dentist about something. I can say, here's some things that we do. Here's some things that you do. I can't, you know, you can't do that because that's, you know, it's collusion or that's all these other things. And, you know, they come after some dentists and it's, it's can be scary, but the ability to now have a seat at the table that that's a that's a different conversation altogether now. So I think we're moving in the right direction. I think that's a great point. I would agree. And again, I'm not here to say I'm not here to bash insurance companies. Everybody should make their own decision. I think we should understand that without dental insurance, most patients don't become patients. But I think we have to figure out how to work with insurance companies on whatever level you know everybody wants to. And the trend I would say is there's more options today for dentists to renegotiate those kinds of relationships than there were over the past five to 10 years. And I find that very exciting. So I, I'm, I'm definitely on the, on the page of fee for service. No question. I'm definitely on the page of set your fees and collect a fair fee for what you do and get the best relationship you can. If that's what you choose to do with the insurance companies. How do you, uh, how do you deal with some of these? They're not really dental, but they're like Amazon, these other companies that, that now are getting into, because I've been a part of some different uh, surveys and they've asked us, you know, gray market or pink market, whatever they're calling it these days. And, and, and I stay completely out of it. I don't want anything to do with that because I don't think you can really trust the sourcing um, to the point where, hey, we have our own dental lab and I know exactly where my porcelain comes from. I, I know where, where it was made. I know where it was manufactured. I know who's doing it. So I have kind of full quality control. And I like to think that we have the same by working with a company like yourself. Uh, but how, how does that pose? I mean, that's got to be now the newer thoughts in terms of, okay, there's this other entity. What's that look like for you guys? So it's an interesting question. It's a little bit of a self-serving answer, but I'll, I'll try to answer as, as best I can. 
Um, when you're buying from a non-authorized dealer, and there are lots of them out there, there's right. a chance, and it's not an in, it's not insignificant, that the product you're putting in the patient's mouth is counterfeit. Right. It's not just people have this idea that gray market is just product that's the same product, but it just got diverted. The answer is often not oftentimes, but a, a fair percentage of it is just made in somebody's basement in Eastern Europe and they yeah. slap a label on it. it's counterfeit. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big believer and it's what we do at Benco. We only sell authorized product. Not only that, we make sure that we are in control to use your term from the entire, the entire time, from the time it leaves the vendor until the time it gets to the doctor. So for example, we have big refrigerators because some products need to be refrigerated. We have temperature controlled warehouses, otherwise the gloves start sticking together and the stuff goes bad and doesn't last as long. We very much observe and, and live up to the, um, the expiration dates on products because we sell drugs. So we take it very seriously. Um, the answer to your question is we compete by doing what we know how to do and doing it well. There are doctors who try other things different times. Usually they come back because they have a bad experience. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, um, I definitely agree with what you're saying. It's, uh, it's not something that should be taken lightly. I mean, to save, if something seems like it's too cheap to be true, chances are it's too cheap to be true. Right. I mean, if Shine, Patterson, and Benko are all selling something for $100 and somebody comes around and says, I can sell it to you for $40, chances are it's not the same thing. Yeah. And I think to make a... A decision like that to save a few dollars—it's just you're you're putting your clinical outcomes yeah. at risk. Yeah, no thanks. And and you know that one's got my name on it. Uh, the one thing I thought was interesting was what you guys did with masks, was the quality control aspect. You actually were visited. You visited. You had like boots on the ground. It wasn't just oh yeah, my, you know my friend's cousin's brother told me this place is good. We're going to sell these masks, right? Talk, you want to talk a little bit about that because yeah. that was serious. not only that the. The, and there's some videos on the internet you can find. Now that the guy visiting is my brother. So we send an owner of the business over to China to inspect the factories and he wants to see how things are being made. He wants to make sure that the people there are being traded fairly. He wants to make sure that when they're making, when they're making masks, they're living up to the, you know, the manufacturing principles and the product is gonna last. And by the way, we, just, we know now, masks actually have an expiration date because they start falling apart after a period of time. So we take this thing very seriously at Benco. Uh, one of the things that uh, my brother spends a lot of time on is our private label initiatives because he wants to make sure, we want to make sure that the quality of the product that says Benco on it, and it's a pretty extensive product line, it yep. meets our definition of quality and it lives up to what our customers are expecting. So it's, you know, the small guys out there, the Amazons, I mean, I'm not saying they do a bad job. That's up to customers to figure out. What I am saying is that I know what we do to deliver the value that we do to our customers. And um, it's not easy and we take it seriously and we will not compromise on it. That's part of that thinking in decades, not quarters. Like I'm not gonna cheap stuff out so that we can be five cents cheaper. It's just not worth it. It's too much reputational risk. You guys have a set of core values at Benko? We do. Would you like to share them? Yeah. Um, so our mission is that we, we drive dentistry forward through our innovative solutions and our caring family culture. And so that's our mission statement. And really what we do is really, we really gauge everything off well, of let me, our let me interrupt you. dentistry forward. Let me interrupt sure. you. If you don't, and listening to this, if you don't get that message, you either haven't been listening, you know, or you drove off a cliff or something, but that comes through loud and clear. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So we drive dentistry forward through our innovative solutions and caring family cultures. And caring family culture, and I would just throw in a, a little sidebar to say, um, 
most distributors in America are not focused on innovation. That's really what most manufacturers focus on. How do we invent the newest, latest, and greatest? At Benco, we've decided that part of our value proposition is to make sure that we're finding the newest, latest, and greatest products and bringing them to our customers. When it comes to our values, you put me on the spot because we've got five or six of them. So I'm not sure that I'll remember all of them, but I'll, I'll, I'll quote the ones that I do remember from memory. The most important one, and I, this is one we're sharing, and it really goes back to where we started the podcast, is we cherish our sterling reputation every day. And one of the things that I learned, Rick and I both learned from my, my dad, our dad, is that a reputation takes decades to make. Right. And, minutes to lose minutes and so the number one value that we have in the organization is we cherish our sterling reputation every day and everything we do is through that lens if it doesn't build a reputation if it doesn't burnish this reputation that we spent 93 years building we don't do it it's right. as simple as that um, we start every conversation or every issue by asking what does the customer want and why so we always start from the customer perspective um, we invest in our communities. We're always making sure that our communities are better. Um, we smile and, um, geez, I'm missing one off the top of my head, but you caught me off guard. So I'll just well, go with great. those four. Those are the most important ones. We, we, we try to make our communities better. We try to do that all the time. We always ask why over and over, like, why is this? Why is that? And we start with the customer in mind. Well, that goes we, to innovation. We burnish our sterling reputation and we always smile. But you said, think about all the things you said during this podcast alone. Like, you know, we, 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 we get the information from our, our, our customers, our, our uh, management people go out with our, um, with our salespeople to, to get why. So it's not, it's not just words on a paper. It's a way of, it's in your DNA, but you don't work at Banco. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. Exactly. hundred uh, percent. Because if you have values, but nobody's living them and values got right. values have to, in order to work, they have to influence how you actually run the business and the right. organization. And we really live up to them all the time. They're, it's not, it's something we take very seriously. Great stuff. Last question. I'm going to give you last question. Um, okay. I, I ask most people first time they're on here. So if you could go back in time, anywhere, time or place, where would you go and why? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, uh, I, I find the post-World War II period very interesting in America. And I find that, you know, we have this whole influx of people. We basically did the right thing around the world and we, we, we defeated bad guys, no question. And then we came back and in the 1940s and 50s, I just found, I find the, the pace of, innovation and the pace of technology and the pace of income growth to be fascinating. The number of people who went from sort of in the 1930s, the depression, the 1940s, the war, I'm oversimplifying, of course, to the 1940s, late 40s and 50s. I find that period very interesting in, in the way it's influenced us as Americans today and the way it really built the society that we all um, have known to grow and love. And um, I just think it's, I think it's a fascinating period to have lived through. Perfect. Well, that makes sense with the building of the highways and the roads and everything else, right? Indeed. That's, Thank you. That's perfect. All right. Well, I can't say enough. Thank you very much, Chuck. Appreciate your time, your expertise, and uh, and your uh, insights into all that. And um, if anybody wants to deal with Benko, they are in your neighborhood, guaranteed, and they'll have a rep and they'll have a, a place to, to contact you. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Sunny? Sonny, it's I should be thanking you. I'm flattered to have been invited to participate. Happy to come back anytime. You're the best. 
<laughs> and I appreciate the time together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fee for Service Dentist Podcast. If you would like to share your fee for service story, please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our Fee for Service Dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.